Section 29 of Select Sermons of Jonathan Edwards. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Select Sermons of Jonathan Edwards. Section 29 Christian Knowledge, Part 1. Hebrews 5.12. For then, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. These words are a complaint, which the Apostle makes against the Christian Hebrews, for their want of such proficiency in the knowledge of the doctrines and mysteries of religion as might have been expected of them. The Apostle complains that they had not made that progress in their acquaintance with the things taught in the oracles of God which they ought to have made and he means to reprove them, not merely for their deficiency in spiritual and experimental knowledge of divine things, but for their deficiency in a doctrinal acquaintance with the principles of religion and the truths of Christian divinity, as is evident by the manner in which the Apostle introduces this reproof. The occasion of his introducing it is this. In the next text, but one preceding, he mentions Christ as being called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In the Old Testament, the oracles of God, Melchizedek, was held forth as an eminent type of Christ, and the account we there have of him contains many gospel mysteries. These mysteries the Apostle was willing to point out to the Christian Hebrews, but he apprehended that through their weakness in knowledge they would not understand him, and therefore breaks off for the present from saying anything about Melchizedek. Thus, verse 11, Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing i.e., there are many things concerning Melchizedek which contain wonderful gospel mysteries, and which I would take notice of to you, were it not that I am afraid, that through your dullness and backwardness in understanding these things, you would only be puzzled and confounded by my discourse, and so receive no benefit, and that it would be too hard for you, as meat that is too strong. Then come in the words of the text, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. As much as to say, indeed, it might have been expected of you that you should have known enough of the Holy Scriptures to be able to understand and digest such mysteries, but it is not so with you. The Apostle speaks of their proficiency in such knowledge as is conveyed by human teaching, as appears by that expression, when, for the time ye ought to be teachers which includes not only a practical and experimental, but also a doctrinal knowledge of the truths and mysteries of religion. Again, the Apostle speaks of such knowledge whereby Christians are enabled to understand those things in divinity which are more abstruse and difficult to be understood, and which require great skill in things of this nature. This is more fully expressed in the two next verses. For every one that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. It is such knowledge that proficiency in it shall carry persons beyond the first principles of religion, as here, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. Therefore the Apostle, in the beginning of the next chapter, advises them, to leave the first principles of the doctrine of Christ, and to go on unto perfection. 
we may observe that the fault of this defect appears in that they had not made proficiency according to their time for the time they ought to have been teachers as they were christians their business was to learn and gain christian knowledge they were scholars in the school of christ and if they had improved their time in learning as they ought to have done they might by the time when the apostle wrote have been fit to be teachers in this school to whatever business any one is devoted it may be expected that his perfection in it shall be answerable to the time he has had to learn and perfect himself christians should not always remain babes but should grow in christian knowledge and leaving the food of babes they should learn to digest strong meat doctrine every christian should make a business of endeavouring to grow in knowledge of divinity this is indeed esteemed the business of divines and ministers it is commonly thought to be their work by the study of the scriptures and other instructive books to gain knowledge and most seem to think that it may be left to them as what belongeth not to others but if the apostle had entertained this notion he would never have blamed the christian hebrews for not having acquired knowledge enough to be teachers or if he had thought that this concerned christians in general only as a thing by the by and that their time should not in a considerable measure be taken up with this business he would never have so much blamed them that their proficiency in knowledge had not been answerable to the time which they had had to learn in handling this subject i shall show what is intended by divinity what kind of knowledge in divinity is intended and why knowledge in divinity is necessary and why all christians should make a business of endeavouring to grow in this knowledge section one what is intended by divinity as the object of christian knowledge various definitions have been given to this subject by those who have treated on it i shall not now stand to inquire which according to the rules of art is the most accurate definition but shall so define or describe it as i think has the greatest tendency to convey a proper notion of it it is that science or doctrine which comprehends all those truths and rules which concern the great business of religion there are various kinds of arts and sciences taught and learned in the schools which are conversant about various objects about the works of nature in general as philosophy or the visible heavens as astronomy or the sea as navigation or the earth as geography or the body of man as physic and anatomy or of the soul of man with regards to its natural powers and qualities as logic and pneumatology or about human government as politics and jurisprudence but one science or kind of knowledge and doctrine is above all the rest as it treats concerning god and the great business of religion divinity is not learned as other sciences merely by the improvement of man's natural reason but is taught by god himself in a book full of instruction which he hath given us for that end this is the rule which god hath given to the world to be their guide in searching after this kind of knowledge and is a summary of all things of this nature needful for us to know upon this account divinity is rather called a doctrine than an art or science indeed there is what is called natural religion there are many truths concerning god and our duty to him which are evident by the light of nature but christian divinity properly so called is not evident by the light of nature it depends on revelation such are our circumstances now in our fallen state that nothing which is needful for us to know concerning god is manifest by the light of nature in the manner in which it is necessary for us to know it 
for the knowledge of no truth in divinity is of significance to us any otherwise than as it some way or other belongs to the gospel scheme or as it relates to a mediator but the light of nature teaches us no truth in this matter therefore it cannot be said that we come to the knowledge of any part of christian truth by the light of nature it is only the word of god contained in the old and new testament which teaches us christian divinity this comprehends all that is taught in the scriptures and so all that we need know or is to be known concerning god and jesus christ concerning our duty to god and our happiness in god divinity is commonly defined the doctrine of living to god and by some who seem to be more accurate the doctrine of living to god by christ it comprehends all christian doctrines as they are in jesus and all christian rules directing us in living to god by christ there is no one doctrine no promise no rule but what some way or other relates to the christian and divine life or our living to god by christ they all relate to this in two respects viz as they tend to promote our living to god here in this world in a life of faith and holiness and also as they tend to bring us to a life of perfect holiness and happiness in the full enjoyment of god hereafter section two what kind of knowledge in divinity is intended in the doctrine there are two kinds of knowledge of divine truth viz speculative and practical or in other terms natural and spiritual the former remains only in the head no other faculty but the understanding is concerned in it it consists in having a natural or rational knowledge of the things of religion or such a knowledge as is to be obtained by the natural exercise of our own faculties without any special illumination of the spirit of god the latter rests not entirely in the head or in the speculative idea of things but the heart is concerned in it it principally consists in the sense of the heart the mere intellect without the will or the inclination is not the seat of it and it may not only be called seeing but feeling or tasting thus there is a difference between having a right speculative notion of the doctrines contained in the word of god and having a due sense of them in the heart in the former consists the speculative or natural knowledge in the latter consists the spiritual or practical knowledge of them neither of these is intended in the doctrine exclusively of the other but it is intended that we should seek the former in order to the latter the latter or the spiritual and practical is of the greatest importance for a speculative without a spiritual knowledge is to no purpose but to make our condemnation the greater yet a speculative knowledge is also of infinite importance in this respect that without it we can have no spiritual or practical knowledge i have already shown that the apostle speaks not only of a spiritual knowledge but of such as can be acquired and communicated from one to another yet it is not to be thought that he means this exclusively of the other but he would have the christian hebrews seek the one in order to the other therefore the former is first and most directly intended it is intended that christians should by reading and other proper means seek a good rational knowledge of the things of divinity while the latter is more indirectly intended since it is to be sought by the other but i proceed to section three the usefulness and necessity of the knowledge of divine truths there is no other way by which any means of grace whatsoever can be of any benefit but by knowledge all teaching is in vain without learning 
Therefore the preaching of the gospel would be wholly to no purpose if it conveyed no knowledge to the mind. There is an order of men which Christ has appointed on purpose to be teachers in his church. But they teach in vain, if no knowledge in these things is gained by their teaching. It is impossible that their teaching and preaching should be a mean of grace, or of any good in the hearts of the hearers, any otherwise than by knowledge imparted to their understanding. Otherwise it would be of as much benefit to the auditory, if the minister should preach in some unknown tongue. All the difference is that preaching in a known tongue conveys something to the understanding, which preaching in an unknown tongue doth not. On this account such preaching must be unprofitable. In such things men receive nothing, when they understand nothing, and are not at all edified, unless some knowledge be conveyed, agreeable to the apostles arguing. 1 Corinthians 14, 2, 6 no speech can be a mean of grace but by conveying knowledge otherwise the speech is as much lost as if there had been no man there and if he that spoke had spoken only into the air as it follows in the passage just quoted verse six and ten god deals with man as with a rational creature and when faith is an exercise it is not about something he knows not what therefore hearing is absolutely necessary to faith because hearing is necessary to understanding. Romans 10.14 How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? In like manner, there can be no love without knowledge. It is not according to the nature of the human soul to love an object which is entirely unknown. The heart cannot be set upon an object of which there is no idea in the understanding. The reasons which induce the soul to love must first be understood before they can have a reasonable influence on the heart. God hath given us the Bible, which is a book of instructions. But this book can be of no manner of profit to us, any otherwise than as it conveys some knowledge to the mind. It can profit us no more than if it were written in the Chinese or Tartarian language, of which we know not one word. So the sacraments of the gospel can have a proper effect no other way than by conveying some knowledge. They represent certain things by visible signs, and what is the end of signs but to convey some knowledge of the thing signified? Such is the nature of man, that no object can come at the heart but through the door of the understanding, and there can be no spiritual knowledge of that of which there is not first a rational knowledge. It is impossible that any one should see the truth or excellency of any doctrine of the gospel who knows not what that doctrine is. A man cannot see the wonderful excellency and love of Christ in doing such and such things for sinners, unless his understanding be first informed how these things were done. He cannot have a taste of the sweetness and excellency of divine truth, unless he first have a notion that there is such a thing. Without knowledge and divinity, none would differ from the most ignorant and barbarous heathens. The heathens remain in gross darkness, because they are not instructed and have not obtained the knowledge of divine truths. If men have no knowledge of these things, the faculty of reason in them will be wholly in vain. The faculty of reason and understanding was given for actual understanding and knowledge. If a man have no actual knowledge, the faculty or capacity of knowing is of no use to him. And if he have actual knowledge, yet if he be destitute of the knowledge of those things, which are the last end of his being, and for the sake of the knowledge 
of which he had more understanding, given him than the beasts, then still his faculty of reason is in vain. He might as well have been a beast as a man. But divine subjects are the things to know which we had the faculty of reason given us. They are the things which appertain to the end of our being, and to the great business for which we are made. Therefore a man cannot have his faculty of understanding to any good purpose further than he hath knowledge of divine truth. So that this kind of knowledge is absolutely necessary. Other kinds of knowledge may be very useful. Some other sciences, such as astronomy, natural philosophy, and geography, may be very excellent in their kind. But the knowledge of this divine science is infinitely more useful and important than that of all other sciences whatever. Section 4. Why all Christians should make a business of endeavoring to grow in the knowledge of divinity. Christians ought not to content themselves with such degrees of knowledge of divinity as they have already obtained. It should not satisfy them, as they know as much as is absolutely necessary to salvation, but should seek to make progress. This endeavor to make progress in such knowledge ought not to be attended to as a thing by the by, but all Christians should make a business of it. They should look upon it as a part of their daily business, and no small part of it neither, for it should be attended to as a considerable part of the work of their high calling, for, one, our business should doubtless much consist in employing those faculties by which we are distinguished from the beasts, about those things which are the main end of these faculties. The reason why we have faculties superior to those of the brutes given us is that we are indeed designed for superior employment. That which the Creator intended should be our main employment is something above what he intended the beast for, and therefore hath given us superior powers. Therefore, without doubt, it should be a considerable part of our business to improve these superior faculties. But the faculty by which we are chiefly distinguished from the brutes is the faculty of understanding. It follows, then, that we should make it our chief business to improve this faculty, and should by no means prosecute it as business by the by. For us to make the improvement of this faculty a business by the by is, in effect, for us to make the faculty of understanding itself a by faculty, if I may so speak, a faculty of less importance than others, whereas, indeed, it is the highest faculty we have. But we cannot make a business of the improvement of our intellectual faculty any otherwise than by making a business of improving ourselves in actual knowledge, so that those who make not this very much their business, but instead of improving their understanding to acquire knowledge, are chiefly devoted to their inferior power to please their senses, and gratify their animal appetites, not only behave themselves in a manner not becoming Christians, but also act as if they had forgotten that they are men, and that God hath set them above the brutes by giving them understanding. God hath given to man some things in common with the brutes, as his outward senses, his bodily appetites, a capacity of bodily pleasure and pain, and other animal faculties, and some things he hath given him superior to the brutes, the chief of which is a faculty of understanding and reason. Now God never gave man these faculties to be subject to those which he hath in common with the brutes. This would be great confusion, and equivalent to making man to be a servant of the beasts. On the contrary, he has given those inferior powers to be employed in subserviency to man's understanding, 
and therefore it must be a great part of man's principal business to improve his understanding by acquiring knowledge. If so, then it will follow that it should be a main part of his business to improve his understanding in acquiring divine knowledge, or the knowledge of the things of divinity, for the knowledge of these things is the principal end of his faculty. God gave man the faculty of understanding, chiefly that he might understand divine things. The wiser heathens were sensible that the main business of man was the improvement and exercise of his understanding, but they knew not the object about which the understanding should be chiefly employed. That science which many of them thought should chiefly employ the understanding was philosophy, and accordingly they made it their chief business to study it. But we who enjoy the light of the gospel are more happy. We are not left, as to this particular, in the dark. God hath told us about what things we should chiefly employ our understandings, having given us a book full of divine instructions, holding forth many glorious objects about which all rational creatures should chiefly employ their understandings. These instructions are accommodated to persons of all capacities and conditions, and proper to be studied not only by men of reaming, but by persons of every character, learned and unlearned, young and old, men and women. Therefore the acquisition of knowledge in these things should be a main business of all those who have the advantage of enjoying the Holy Scriptures. 2. The truths of divinity are superlative excellency, and are worthy that all should make a business of endeavoring to grow in the knowledge of them. They are as much above those things which are treated of in other sciences as heaven is above earth. God himself, the eternal three-in-one, is the chief object of this science, and next Jesus Christ, as God, man, and mediator, and the glorious work of redemption, the most glorious work that ever was wrought, then the great things of the heavenly world, the glorious and eternal inheritance purchased by Christ and promised in the Gospels, the work of the Holy Spirit of God on the hearts of men, our duty to God, and the way in which we ourselves may become like angels and like God himself in our measure. All these are objects of this science. Such things as these have been the main subject of the study of the holy patriarchs, prophets, and apostles, and the most excellent men that ever existed, and they are also the subject of study to the angels in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 12 They are so excellent and worthy to be known, that the knowledge of them will richly pay for all the pains and labor of an earnest seeking of it. If there were a great treasure of gold and pearls accidentally found, and open with such circumstances that all might have as much as they could gather, would not every one think it worth his while to make a business of gathering while it should last? But the treasure of divine knowledge, which is contained in the Scriptures, and is provided for every one to gather to himself as much of it as he can, is far more rich than any one of gold and pearls." How busy are all sorts of men, all over the world, in getting riches! But this knowledge is a far better kind of riches than that after which they so diligently and laboriously pursue. 3. Divine truths not only concern ministers, but are of infinite importance to all Christians. It is not with the doctrine of divinity as it is with the doctrines of philosophy and other sciences. These last are generally speculative points which are of little concern in human life, and it very little alters the case as to our temporal or spiritual interests, whether we know them or not. Philosophers differ about them, 
some being of one opinion and others of another. And while they are engaged in warm disputes about them, others may well leave them to dispute among themselves without troubling their heads much about them, it being of little concern to them whether the one or the other be in the right. But it is not thus in matters of divinity. The doctrines of this nearly concern every one. They are about those things which relate to every man's eternal salvation and happiness. The common people cannot say, Let us leave these matters to ministers and divines. Let them dispute them out among themselves as they can. They concern not us, for they are of infinite importance to every man. Those doctrines which relate to the essence, attributes, and substances of God concern all. As it is of infinite importance to common people, as well as to ministers, to know what kind of being God is. For he is a being who hath made us all, in whom we live, and move, and have our being, who is the Lord of all, the being to whom we are all accountable, who is the last end of our being, and the only fountain of our happiness. The doctrines also, which relate to Jesus Christ and his mediation, his incarnation, his life and death, his resurrection and ascension, his sitting at the right hands of the Father, his satisfaction and intercession, infinitely concern common people as well as divines. They stand in as much need of this Saviour, and of an interest in his person and offices, and the things which he hath done and suffered, as ministers and divines. The same may be said of the doctrines which relate to the manner of a sinner's justification, or the way in which he becomes interested in the mediation of Christ. They equally concern all, for all stand in equal necessity of justification before God. That eternal condemnation, to which we are all naturally exposed, is equally dreadful. So with respect to those doctrines which relate to the work of the Spirit of God on the heart, and the application of redemption in our effectual calling and sanctification, are all equally concerned in them. There is no doctrine of divinity whatever, which doth not some way or other concern the eternal interest of every Christian. 4. We may argue in favor of the same position, from the great things which God hath done in order to give us instruction in these things. As to other sciences, he hath left us to ourselves, to the light of our own reason. But divine things, being of infinitely greater importance to us, he hath not left us to an uncertain guide, but hath himself given us a revelation of the truth in these matters, and hath done very great things to convey and confirm it to us, raising up many prophets in different ages, immediately inspiring them with his Holy Spirit, and confirming their doctrine with innumerable miracles or wonderful works out of the established course of nature. Yea, he raised up a succession of prophets, which was upheld for several ages. It was very much for this end that God separated the people of Israel, in so wonderful a manner, from all other people, and kept them separate, that to them he might commit the oracles of God, and that from them they might be communicated to the world. He hath also often sent angels to bring divine instructions to men, and hath often himself appeared in miraculous symbols or representations of his presence, and now in these last days hath sent his own Son into the world to be his great prophet, to teach us divine truth. Hebrews 1, 1, etc. God hath given us a book of divine instructions, which contains the sum of divinity. Now these things hath God done, 
not only for the instruction of ministers and men of learning, but for the instruction of all men, of all sorts, learned and unlearned, men, women, and children. And certainly, if God does such great things to teach us, we ought to do something to learn. God giving instructions to men in these things is not a business by the by, but what he hath undertaken and prosecuted in a course of great and wonderful dispensations, as an affair in which his heart hath been greatly engaged, which is sometimes in Scripture signified by the expression of God's rising early to teach us, and to send us prophets and teachers, Jeremiah 7.25, Since that day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt, unto this day I have even sent unto you all my servants and prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. And verse 13, I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking. This is a figurative speech, signifying that God hath done this as a business of great importance, in which he took great care, and had his heart much engaged, because persons are wont to rise early to prosecute such business as they are earnestly engaged in. If God hath been so engaged in teaching, certainly we should not be negligent in learning, but should make growing in knowledge a great part of the business of our lives. End of section 29 Recording by Katie Riley, January 2009